Welcome to Stay Engaged 2021. Everything you know and love about IAB Engage, but brought to you day by day. It's Engage, but offstage. Stay Engaged is hosted in partnership with Quantcast, creators of a new and innovative intelligent audience platform. The Advertising Association's recent All-In report found that 20% of UK advertising professionals attended fee-paying schools versus a national average of just 8%. Given this imbalance, is there still stigma in Adland about being or even sounding working class? A new industry forum, Common People, aims to reduce barriers to entry for people from working class backgrounds, assist with career development, and be a space where people can share their career journeys. In this session, Jed Hallam, Sarah Sutton, and Emma Hopkins talk about why Common People is needed and how it can make marketing better. Jed, Common People, why now? Well, look, there's two versions of this story. There's the kind of exciting genesis story that says the latest creative industry census says that there's been a three percentage point decrease in creative representation of working class people and people from working class backgrounds in the creative industries over the last five years which is pretty shocking because it wasn't very good five years ago either so it's gone from 16 to 13 percent across the creative industries which is shocking that is the technical post-rationalized version of (laughs) why now the genuine why now is far less glamorous and (laughs) Is kind of an accumulation of conversations that uh, people like myself and Sarah have been having for, for the best part of a decade. Uh, we've kind of clocked each other, I think, and collected each other as a sort of panini sticker style <laughs> situation where you just notice somebody like using certain words and certain reference points and think, okay, you, you, you're a bit like me, you're from the same place and there aren't many yeah. of us. And then probably about two months ago on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, Another friend who's involved in Common People as this sort of, I hate to use the phrase, but this sort of steering group, mm. um, sent me a WhatsApp, an Instagram story from this uh, woman called Rose O'Connell, who's now involved in the steering group as well, which was just a really eloquent and incredibly well-articulated takedown and explanation of why class is the sort of final and the, the last standing, I suppose, socially acceptable form of discrimination. Mm. Like we all know the, the terms that get bandied out about on a regular basis, and we've all seen the television programmes like Bailiffs at the Door and Benefit Street and things yeah, like that. Yeah. These are awful things, but they are widely used as reference points across culture, and those things exist as cultural reference points in, in advertising and in the creative industries as well. Yeah. So this set of stories kind of prompted me, and finally after talking about it with quite a few people for a decade, actually putting some deeds to the words, and that's where it all came from. Literally started out as the idea of let's set up a WhatsApp group, as all great ideas do, (laughs) and see if anyone joins, expecting 15, 20 people to join it. And within 12 hours, we'd kind of capped out the the WhatsApp group. I didn't realise there was a limit on WhatsApp groups. (laughs) Um, So by 11 o'clock that night, there was 250 people there, and we had to launch a Slack. And then Sarah, myself, Emma, Lisa, and a whole group of other people then started to put together a bit of a plan, because it didn't have a plan to begin with. It was just a bit of a fleeting idea. The IAB researchers have got it entirely wrong. They've undercut the numbers, 150 members in 24 hours, but you actually maxed out the group, which is incredible. That's amazing. And where are you at now? So I think that last count, so we've got, we we launched a Slack group as well, because obviously this common people is, the, the idea is that it is a network across the creative industry. So there's people from the world of art, advertising, right through to fashion, to music, and to, to publishing and places like that. And 
So we launched the Slack to give it a little bit more structure because I think we start to get to about 550, 600 people. We got pickup in, obviously, in Campaign, in The Drum, in Ad Week, as well as places like the Bookseller and, and Music Week and places yeah. like that. And as yeah. soon as, obviously, as soon as it hits the press like that, it then starts to generate its own momentum, which is amazing. But as Lisa Thompson said... I think in one of the first interviews we did, it then brings its own pressure with it as well. Mm. And the kind of the weight of, of almost sort of responsibilities to do something that's not rubbish. Did you think it was rubbish when he first told you about it, Sarah? Um, absolutely not. <laughs> it's the thing that most of us have been waiting for. And it's something that most of us as well would say it would have been really handy to have had around 15, 20 years ago when yeah. we were first starting out. Mm. So it's just, yeah, it, it feels really special and certainly really rewarding to be part of this now. To Jed's point, we've just not got to cock it up, so to speak. Is there anything else like it? This is genuinely the first sort of thing. You know, you look at some of the work that Brixton Finishing School's doing and, and other organisations, but there's nothing quite like this. Or is there? We've kind of become a bit of a, a sort of an alumni network for places like Commercial Break and Brixton Finishing School right. and, and even to an extent the School of Creative Arts and Communication Arts as well. And I think there are informal, very small groups that exist, mm. but that there is not a, as at least nothing that I've ever been invited to. Maybe that's more of a reflection of me. But I don't think there's anything of this scale no. uh, that exists right now. And the other side to this is since we've launched, I say launched, but since it's kind of all come about, We've been contacted by so many different organisations that have been incredibly supportive, giving yeah. us advice, guidance, telling us what to do, what not to do, <laughs> and wanting to partner with us as well. We spoke to the 93% group, which is an incredible organisation, was was just insanely humbling to talk to those people. Yeah, tell us about them. I've not heard of them. Yeah, so it was founded by a woman called Sophie who was, was studying a law degree, I think at Bristol, and found herself just completely feeling alone like she was surrounded by people that had gone to, to boarding school to private mm. school and just felt lost so she set up something called 93 percent club which was a society at the time which then they then popped up across lots of different universities across the uk i think there are 42 different chapters of it now i suppose over the last decade that has just grown and the work that they're doing uh, we, we had a chat with some of their comms people a couple of weeks ago and it was just they're a registered charity everything that they're doing is geared towards kind of starting to bring up greater representation in the people from working class backgrounds across more professional industries and i think in a roundabout way we're kind of the creative industry equivalent of them just far less developed and far <laughs> less sophisticated right now you're in a global role now you've worked in european roles you're based in in Amsterdam. is this snobbery whatever is is it a uk thing or does it show up in other places other cultures i don't think there are many other places in the world obsessed with class mm. um, as much as the uk mm. and what's really interesting obviously sitting in the netherlands the netherlands do have a culture where the culture would suggest that no one is better than anyone else irrespective of their means right now obviously that is that's quite a bold statement and there is a culture of it but actually you still do really see issues with social mobility. You know, it's still a huge problem, both in the country and in the industry. Because again, working in a global role and working in the agencies that I've worked in, I haven't come across very many people mm. who, yeah, I would say had come from a less privileged background um, than most. And it just tends to be the same people across the board, you know, 
able to stay at home or families are supporting them. Most of the people that I've worked with whilst I've been in Amsterdam who have moved over have had quite a lot of support from parents as well. So, yeah, yeah I think it's still massively prevalent. But class obsession, not so much. Did you always want to get into creative industries, you know, into media, in, into advertising? What, what did you want to do when you were doing GCSEs, doing A-levels, that sort of stuff? This is going to be a good answer, I can tell. <laughs> did I want to get into the creative industry? Did I even know that existed? <laughs> like, hell no. Like, what's that? Like, I'll, so <laughs> I'll try and keep this really brief, but there was never an intention for me to go to university. It just was not a done thing in my family. And I was quite good at school. I actually really enjoyed school. Mm. But after my A-levels, which I failed half, I had a job lined up with British Coal. That's how old I am. Wow. And I was due to join British Coal's marketing department. And that was going to be my career, 250 quid a week. I thought I was like rock star <laughs> salary there. And yeah, I was ready to go and do that. And then, yeah. The rest is history, really, with mm. the coal industry. Long and short of it was I needed to decide what I was going to do. And I think I had two choices. One was stay at home and work for peanuts for my parents in their pub. Or the other was to leg it to London as fast as I could <laughs> and go through clearing as quickly as I could with the measly A-level results that I got. And even then, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm. And I ended up doing a business and marketing degree because felt cool. And then as luck would have it, I did a placement year. And I got the only job pretty much that was left because they were quite late announcing. Right. So where all my friends had gone to all the big blue chip Unilevers, the banks and got like proper marketing intern roles. I went to a place called the RAB, <laughs> the Radio sound. Advertising Bureau, and I did my oh, year gosh, placement yeah. there. And it was the best thing ever. So. Yeah, Rupert Steele, who took a chance on me. He's the guy I really have to thank for getting mm. me into this industry. Do you, yeah. uh, and Jed, you're not from London either. Does the industry we're in revolve around London? I mean, you hear more and more about people moving out, about amazing agency community in places like Manchester, but is it the sort of the golden paved streets of London where this does happen? Like Sarah said, you know, she felt she had to come here and that's where the creative stuff happens. Was it the same for you? Yeah, it's, it's a funny one because my dad basically just said that I was good at writing. So I just looked for any job where I did a lot of writing and it happened to be a PR job that I saw. And I literally, I think I went in and I was on like 12 grand a year, which shows how old I am because that was still legal. But I had to move to Leeds for it and it, it kind of gave me, well, I actually drive to Leeds for it actually. And it gave me this real sort of anti-London bias. Did it? This is one amazing that I've got this job because none of my friends have got a job like this and I'm mm. getting paid to sit and just write draft press releases this is incredible I'm, I'm paid writer and that's in my head i was literally like i'm an author which shows you the sort of the scale of the narcissism that was on show at the time space. <laughs> everything was really exciting that that first job honestly i've had this conversation with quite a few people over the years but certainly over the last couple of months that first job that i got i thought was gonna be my best job mm. i was like this is incredible i can't believe someone's paying me to sit in an office and just write these things over and over again but i was surrounded by people that were that were kind of already quite annoyed at being asked to write something and right. already quite annoyed at having to rewrite it and redraft it. And I was like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> but I grew a real sort of anti-London bias because I thought I, if I'm going to kind of continue to progress, I don't want to move to London because you can't afford it. So I'm going to continue driving to Leeds and I'll just see how I get on. 
if I can't make it in Leeds and Manchester, then what chance have I even got in London? Because it's bigger and there's more people and it's more expensive. I'll just get lost. What changed? So I kind of developed that. And I think I did about three and a half, four years in Leeds. And I really enjoyed it. And it was a very close knit community. But there was still quite a lot of class discrimination, like accents aside, and accents are a great way of both hiding it, but also kind of uncovering class as well. It was still fascinating. And Leeds was the sort of, I worked at an incredible agency and there's a couple of people that took great chances on me that definitely shouldn't have done because I was qualified for nothing, still qualified for nothing. But that was the first place where I experienced, like, realised that I was different mm. and that I wasn't like everyone I was sat around because I was, I was sat, it was my first client dinner as, like, as an account exec. And everyone was ordering. There was like sort of 10 people sat around the table and everyone sort of jollying away. And I'm thinking, bloody hell, this is a mate. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like on the clock now. Like I used to work at Sainsbury's and I had to clock out for my lunch. And this is <laughs> next level. I'm getting paid for this. This is part of the job. <laughs> it came around to me. I knew that there was a steak that I wanted. The only two differentiators between the two steaks were on the menu with this type of potatoes. And I'd, I'd never, I knew what they were, but I'd never heard it said before. And so when I said, I'll have the steak, please... One, I'm pretty sure I ordered it like mega well done, which is all, <laughs> already like a massive photo. That's, that's the biggest sign of class. That's out. the biggest yeah. sign of class. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was like, I don't even want it. I want it cooked. Surely. <laughs> <laughs> but then the other thing is, because like, the, the, the waiter then said, oh, which steak? And I said, oh, it's the one with the dolphin nose potatoes. Brilliant. And literally the, the entire table erupts and everybody's laughing at me. And one, I shrunk into an even smaller frame than you can possibly imagine at that point. And I'd never heard it said aloud. Mm. So I didn't know how to say it. Maybe it's more a reflection of me, but I've got a whole litany of these. Like Camus was the other one. Like making a reference because I'd done English Lit at Nottingham Trent and talking about Albert Camus. And people looking at me like I'd literally lost my mind. Which you do know it's Camus, don't you? Like, <laughs> how the hell would I know that? Like, it was something that I did extra that was outside of the reading list that I thought was really interesting. And so, you know, you start to see these sorts of weird things that exist that mark you out as being different. And then you see somebody else do it mm. or somebody else make a reference and you think, okay, that's weird because yeah. you're just like me. So I had a very sort of anti-London bias, but still experienced a lot of kind of discrimination. Low level, I, I appreciate, but still. But I think the term these days is microaggression. I spent an hour before a big presentation once because someone convinced me that um, Les Binet was pronounced Binet, as in Binet and Field, and I didn't want to cock it up. And I, everyone I asked had a different point of view. So that's my dolphin nose potatoes. That's my dolphin nose potato story. Sarah, when you look back at stuff, are there really clear, vivid memories you have of Jed's dolphin nose potatoes of where maybe it was accent, maybe it was something else, but you felt outside of the circle, whether it's at the table or in a pitch room or whenever it was? Yeah, I mean, all of the above, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I remember once being asked whether I wrote the same way I spoke oh, and therefore wow. would not be required to write the award entries for CAM. Ah, oh. <laughs> we should just say that you just come off the jury for CAM. J- jokes on there. <laughs> I know you can't say for sure, but I was definitely never invited to pitch for any luxury brands. Right. And I know that I personally felt very different when I went to some of the bigger blue chip clients that I worked on because they're the kind of companies that always recruited from Oxbridge. Mm. That was their kind of milk round. So I never felt like I fit in. I always felt a bit scruffy and really rough around the edges. I didn't live in the home counties and I spoke differently to the rest of them. Yeah. 
And it's funny because the one client that I had the longest relationship with in my agency career was Nike. And it is the one place I always felt 100% allowed to be myself. Really? And I think that's why I had a 12 year relationship with them. Yeah. Because when I walked through those doors, and that's not to say they don't have Oxbridge people working there because they certainly do. But when you walk through those doors, you can be who you really are because that's who they're, they're looking at. They're looking at kids from council estates. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's where their growth comes from. And mm. these are the kids that are driving sports culture and also raising themselves up from those communities through sport. So it was just a real comfortable place for me. And they valued my opinion. They valued my accent. They valued my colloquialisms and the random funny things that I would say <laughs> about people and about life in the North and about what it's like to live on a council estate. Yeah. They sucked it all up and, and that was great. In an obvious way, it's played to your advantage. Someone from the home counties went to Oxbridge isn't going to know about niche sneaker culture. So the yep. insight you could give them was sort of entirely different than maybe the classic, you know, media yeah. grad and all the rest of it. I mean, I'll give you a classic example. I know I mentioned this in an interview previously. When I was, I think I would have been 14 years old, the Air Jordan 4s dropped and they were £120. And this would have been... I'm going to get the years wrong and someone's going to pull me on it. But around 19, <laughs> 1990, 1991, my parents had given me £150 that I had to take to school for the school trip to France. I didn't give the money to my teacher for the school trip to France. And I went straight to the shop and I bought the Jordans in a size too big because they only started at a UK 7 then. So and my feet were a size, in fact, they were two sizes too big. I mean, I was literally wading around in these massive sneakers. <laughs> But my God, I felt cool. And yeah, I mean, I got grounded for, I think, the whole of the summer. I failed my French GCSE. Do I regret it? Hell no. And, Boom. you know, it was only being able to explain to them, like, the lengths kids will go to to get those products, mm. irrespective of their social standing and their parents' income and what income they have. And that was really valuable. Yeah. Jed, has it ever played to your advantage? Have you ever hammed it up is perhaps the wrong thing but have you ever gone sort of turbo working class to your benefit yeah 100 percent. i've done it for close to a decade <laughs> I've, I've stood on stages and said i'm from the north and i'm working class so if you don't understand what i'm saying pop your hand up and i'll, I'll slow down for you I've, i think i've used that joke it's not a particularly funny joke but i've used that sort of self-deprecating joke mm. at least a hundred times wow it's only in the last year or so and, and you know it was my partner who pointed out that i was being a knob saying, look, you're part of the problem because you're playing yeah, up yeah, to this yeah. kind of court jester type situation, mm. which is effectively, it's not just only pulling the ladder up behind you, but you're kind of pushing people down at the same time because you mm. don't allow anyone else to be who they are because you're creating an archetype that you're portraying of working class people and people from working class backgrounds. And I mm. have, I've used it a hundred percent to my, my advantage. And, and to Sutty's point, like you don't get invited to the fancy dinners because you use it as a bit of a fence, I think. And it's, mm. you get so accustomed to being the other in the room that it's very easy to slip into right. the behavior of, oh God, watch your watches when I shake hands with you, that, that type of thing. It's very easy to slip into it because you try to make a virtue of the fact that you're so different and that helps you create a sense of distance from, yeah. I think, people from working class backgrounds and you, which is awful. Mm. And, you know, I feel like you say, Definitely hammed it up and I've made things worse, almost certainly. Thankfully, we live in an age now where it would be very strange for 
a woman or someone of colour to stand on stage and almost do that gag but about them. Oh, by the way, I'm just a woman, so I don't know much about this. The, the bloke just couldn't do it at the last minute, so I stepped in. I mean, it would people would be walking out and all the rest of it. When do you think you get to the point where class, in terms of you talked about discrimination at the start, get, gets to that level where people are really thinking about it seriously and it isn't just ethnicity and gender important as they are but class becomes something of that stature I suppose. I think there has to be a level of recognition that there is discrimination that takes place and undoubtedly there are lots and lots of different attributes like race like gender like sexuality that are are incredibly important and I, I see Class as being something which is intersectional to a lot of those. And yeah, I realise, appreciate, I'm probably using intersectionality slightly in a sort of a slightly non-intentional way there. I do think there are a lot of people that exist within the industry, thinking specifically about advertising, that don't like the idea that class discrimination exists because to accept that yeah. working class people are are discriminated against is to also accept that you were given a leg up and that's really hard. And Mm. we've had a lot of conversations as a a group about what it means to be working class. And it's not about denigrating people that have had opportunities. It's not about kind of saying, look, you've had this, you've had that, we've had nothing. It's about making sure that the people that have come from less privileged backgrounds have got people to lean on and to to give each other opportunities. So it's a really tough one because what I don't want it to become is a kind of a, a sort of middle class hating yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of community because it's it's not that at, at all. Yeah. But to even get to the point where we've got good representation of people from working class backgrounds, we've got to accept that it's that it's not good now. And the industry, I love our industry with a passion, and I think you, I worked with you both in the past. I think you know that. But we are incredibly good at optics. We're incredibly good <laughs> at saying, yeah, not doing. Yeah. And announcing an enormous partnership and then announcing we're going to hire X percent of X type of people over the course of the next few years. But nobody ever looks at the bounce rate of those people that come mm. into the organisations. Mm. Nobody ever looks at the salary disparities that exist. Nobody ever looks at the sort of the discrimination suits that go on inside that organisation when they're there. Because our industry is it has a monolithic culture. Yeah. It doesn't have a culture like Nike where it embraces difference and diversity mm and create an equitable environment for everybody to thrive, we've got a very monolithic culture, yet we spend all day talking about what's happening on the fringes of culture in order to create more creative ideas and more effective ideas, which is perverse. Effectively stealing from the working classes on a daily basis and repackaging it for a mainstream audience. That's To me, that just that doesn't sit well. How does it change? You're, you're both leaders. You've both... You're both in senior positions of influence. Tell me about the makeup of the group. I mean, the numbers are phenomenal, but is it the whole spectrum? Are there people in similar positions to you who can go into their own organisations and make change? Yeah, so it's a really good question. It's the one that we get asked probably the most because I think most people expect us to go, no, there's just a load of students in there. That's the next question. And that's that's a fair enough assumption. I, I think we've got a lot of first year students in there. Most definitely. There are a lot of people that haven't been to university in there as well. There are quite a few college students. There are people that are looking to get their first job in the Mm. industry. I reckon of the full pool of people we've got, half of them are director level or above, if not more. Good. And within 48 hours of of launching the groups, of launching the Slack and talking about the, the sort of the plan that we put together, people like Trevor Beattie, we're getting in touch to say, look, whatever you need, we will help. Yeah. 
there are people in that group that are CEOs, that are founders, that are MDs, that are CSOs who are capable of driving genuine change. Mm. And the manifesto, again, slight shudder at the word, but the, the sort of the, the internal plan that we published to the group a couple of weeks ago basically says that we're not, we don't want to put a sort of big two page spread in a trade mag that says, here's what we want from everybody. Right. Because sitting around waiting for every like the rest of the industry to come in and talk to us about us helping them change is not going to happen instead us as a group are going to change the organizations that we work at mm. because that's the only that's the only way right like we've all got first-hand experience of what it's like to come into the industry from a working class background and the challenges that we've faced to obviously to different extremes and some of the stories that have, have come out have been there have been some you know definitely kind of ones that you sit around and laugh about because they're funny anecdotes like yeah. the dolphin nose potato and cameras and stuff like that but there have been some horrendous stories james and i think it's it is incumbent on us to have made it as far as we've made it to drive real change because we know what it's like and I think that sort of first-hand experience, that lived experience is what makes a big difference when you're trying to actually drive change. Do you feel that sort of sense as well, Sarah? Yeah, for sure. I mean, even just from a personal standpoint, without even considering like my workplace in this, I try and mentor as many individuals as I can possibly take on or even just keep it a little bit more casual, especially around the areas of pay. Because again, the background of an individual, like some of the salaries we earn in the creative industry, like they're salaries that these people have never dreamed about. So when it comes to asking for the right pay for the roles that they're doing, they're not as experienced as they should be, which then I think tends to lead to the discrepancies that we see across the industry. Yeah. And obviously I can only speak to the media and, and creative industry that mm. I've worked in. But even when it comes to my current employer, you know, we are going through changes in terms of our recruitment policy, because I know in the past we've done a lot of, I don't know whether you still call it like psychometric testing. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a classic one there. Joking <laughs> those. And yeah, whether, yeah, I mean, they're great discriminators, mm. right? Because yeah. when you're looking at like, how do you test people for logical thinking? Like, the last thing I want is someone who thinks logically in my team. I want the ideology of random thinking and yeah. out their thoughts. So, yeah, we're just working with them to think about that and how we assess people and how we interview people. And even my partner, like my husband, he works at universities. Mm. And for administration roles, they request PhDs for an administration role wow. in the faculty. Wow like research faculties. And I was like, you need to work on changing that. I was like, because that's just a snobbery that exists in academia. And and that's across the globe. Like removing those barriers to entry is really key. I've got two questions left. One for you, Jed, which is, and it's a loaded question because, you know, of course we, it is. we saw the, the LinkedIn post. It's undoubtedly, this is just phenomenal in terms of numbers, in terms of engagement. But, you know, any adverse reactions? I mean, there was one chap who wasn't particularly pleased about it and voiced as much on LinkedIn. I mean, are you coming up against anything else when people are saying, well, look, I'm, I'm working class, I've done all right? 
there's been so, somebody very early on in all of this said never read the subtweets. So obviously, <laughs> the, the first thing that I did is, is went off and read all the subtweets, and it's disheartening, but it's to be expected, right? Mm. You're asking for change. Nobody, however or whatever position you're in, nobody likes change because it, it feels, you know, it's a break of routine. It's a break of what you're expected mm. of what you expect. And so there's been a, a little bit of sniping. I'm sure off the internet, there's been a lot of sniping, but by and large, most people have been incredibly supportive. I think for those people that haven't, I understand, right? If you're from a working class background, you've never experienced any discrimination. And that is amazing. That is absolutely incredible. And you should be super, super happy because there's a bunch of people that I've been talking to that have. And a lot of the sniping that I have seen has been about the UK is obsessed with class and class doesn't really exist anymore. And if any of that was true, then there wouldn't be... They wouldn't have been the response yeah. that we've had. And then, you know, the, the sort of the representation numbers of, of working class people and people from working class backgrounds in the creative industries would be a lot better. I always thought that with a couple of senior women leaders that I've come across in my career who would come out and say, well, I've never seen it, never heard it, never heard discrimination against women, never experienced it. And it's, yeah, it's phenomenal if you haven't, but it's it's a tough one not to even pick up on it. But also, did, I mean, without sounding like a dick about things, like denying something doesn't exist. Denying something exists because you've not seen it. You should meet Christianity, my friends. Do you know what I mean? There's lots of things that... <laughs> Oh, this is going to get into anti-vaxxers, isn't it? I bloody, I knew it would. I knew it would. It's like catnip for anti-vaxxers, this stuff. L- l- last question, though, and an important one. You talked about the WhatsApp group, which is, oh, sorry, Slack knee WhatsApp group. But if people are listening to this and thinking, I absolutely want to get involved, wh- whatever level they are, what can they do? What's the first thing they should do? Get in touch with one of us or get in touch with anybody that's involved in in it that you know. It's spread really, really quickly and continues to add more and more people to it. I think get in touch with Sarah, myself or anyone else that, that you know is involved in it. We'll send you the links through. The reason why we've not put the links public is not for anything particularly nefarious, but more just because, you know, if you're putting your hand up to say, I'm working class or I'm from a working class background, I'd love to be part of that, then that's enough. It's not there's no means testing. You don't have to pass a test to join, but I would like people to be to have to ask for the link because I think there are a lot of, and I've gone through a lot of this over the course of the last few years, building different types of teams, but they, they can often be, with the best of intentions, a little bit of sort of diversity tourism that can go on. Mm. And we're, we're very keen to make sure that, that common people remain a network of people that are all from the same sort of background and, and similar sorts of experiences, and that it, it remains a safe space to have conversations about some of those experiences. Very last question. Who gets credited with coming up with the name? <laughs> <laughs> so Jarvis Cocker pro- <laughs> yes the right <laughs> one that is Jarvis Cocker the right answer. our very own Jarvis Cocker Louise Richardson very own- yeah and, and do you know what when she first mentioned it I said I think it's too self-referential I don't think we should do it I don't think people will like it which Mia Culpa was a terrible response to an incredible creative idea and Louise Richardson deserves all credit for that wow. a great idea and something which is it's been a real gift in terms of how we've been able to use that as a phrase as well so yeah, full credit to Lou. Huge endorsement. And one of the most listened to podcasts we've ever done, actually, with Lou. So she's clearly got an incredible network. So let's see if we can outdo it on listens with this one. We shall see. <laughs> we shall see. Sarah, Jed, thank you so much for giving up some time and sharing the story, sharing how people get involved, sharing your own stories as well. You don't need luck because it sounds like it's absolutely thriving already, but obviously wish you all the best with common people perhaps we'll do that thing where we get you back on in a year when you know you've entirely successful from it and and you can tell us the story of how it happened but for now thank you so much for sharing a story with us 
Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Us, thank you for your support. Yeah, cheers, James. You're listening to Stay Engaged from IAB UK. Thank you for tuning in to this offstage audio session. And thanks to our partners at Quantcast. If you've enjoyed this session, please share it and tag at IAB UK on Twitter or Instagram. Subscribe wherever you're listening to hear the rest of the Stay Engaged sessions and for the regular IAB UK podcast. The next Stay Engaged offstage session is from YouTube, discussing UK Pacific YouTube original A Seat at the Table with its star Jack Harry's. Coming up next on Stay Engaged. Stay Engaged.